0: The historical convergence of European imperialism and technological innovation in communication and travel made multiple social sites of intersection between the local and the global possible. Niall Green examines how these terrains of exchange transformed Islam during the modern period from roughly 1800 to 1940 in his new book, Terrains of Exchange, Religious Economies of Global Islam. Green sees religion as a tool for social power and explores various religious economies to determine how interpretations of Islam are negotiated and deployed. What he shows is that modern iterations of the tradition are often shaped not only by Muslims, but also Christians and Hindus. In these sites of exchange, religious actors and institutions can be analyzed as entrepreneurs and firms, which effectively compete for their clientele. Religious entrepreneurial competition and innovation fostered by Muslim-Christian interactions in imperial contexts contributed to Muslims' adaptation of Christian missionary methods for their own proselytization purposes. Overall, Green presents a world history of Islam that disrupts assertions of the unifying power of globalization on Muslims and illustrates the generative process within these terrains of exchange. In our conversation, We discussed Evangelical Orientalism at England's universities, Bibles and printing in Muslim societies, language exchange, religious entrepreneurs in Hyderabad, traditions of Hindu Sufism, and the construction of the first mosques in Detroit and Japan. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Niall Green. Welcome, Niall. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty pretty good. Thank you, Christian. So this book, Terrains of Exchange: Religious Economies of Global Islam, uh, is really a, a wonderful read, and I think a book that perhaps you and uh, a few other people could could only produce. It's theoretically rich and uh, brings in really kind of detailed but very accessible and interesting case studies to to think about some of these theories and methods you're you're putting into play. So uh, I appreciate the book, and I look forward to to hearing about it. Uh, but we always start with a little bit about our authors, uh, so if you could take a moment to just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Islamic studies, uh, perhaps individuals or, uh, or moments that have uh, been influential in uh, shaping the types of questions you ask or the, the locations that you're interested in or uh, how, did, how did you get to where you are today?
1: Yeah, well, really, in many ways, it, it all started as a, a sort of tale I've told many times before, won't tell at length now, but at the age of 17, I, I, I got a train from where I grew up in England to Istanbul, which is as far as I could go again, and I spent the summer knocking around Turkey, and then in the next few years, when I left high school when I was 18, and then when I was 19 and 20, I was traveling alone, as usual, around, um, you know, eastern Turkey, wandering across the border into Iran one time, in fact, when I was 18, and then uh In Egypt and by the time I was 20 I was in North India and throughout my 20s really I kind of only really did my studies because it was a way of legitimizing my fascination with life on the road in the Middle East and the Islamic world more generally and and as time went on I kind of I spent a lot of time in in Iran and I did my masters at at, at Cambridge I did my infill in in uh, oriental studies it was called then and focusing particularly on Persian and I spent quite a bit of time in Iran and then I kind of started going to places like Pakistan, spent a fair bit of time there. And then over the years, I actually took a bunch of years out, the gap years in my CV, leading so-called adventure tours through places like, places very inaccessible now, in fact, places like Syria and Yemen. Um, I later traveled in Afghanistan and Central Asia and other places too. And and those travels really, I think, very much kind of shaped my, they were my primary encounter with the Islamic world, not through books, but primarily and originally through what i would now call really kind of terrains through really you know being sur le terrain as the french would say being on the ground and and throughout my 20s when i kind of pondered grad school and moved into it i thought i might become an anthropologist and in many ways anthropology and that side of the social sciences were much more um the kind of forms of methodology that really had much more rapport with me but i was fundamentally interested in the past so when i i lived in india for my PhD in my late 20s, I did my PhD at, at SOAS in London. Um, when I lived in India, I was really kind of very interested in trying to trace, as it were, the the imprints of the past through institutions, particularly at that time, Sufi shrines, that um, and to try to understand the past through the tradition and the forms of tradition, that it was handed down by five forms of local memory, spoken, oral history, but also, of course, through hagiographies and local histories written in situ so really that that experience really which is ongoing i think this is the first year this year of the last 26 years that i haven't been traveling somewhere in the islamic world but but that kind of you know kind of in you know, a quarter century really of being you know on the road for between one and seven months or even eight nine months a year um in my 20s certainly really shaped my approach as a historian and that really i think for me at least as the Rec- the try- ways of really trying to work out in many ways that dissonance between uh, the experience of Islam in situ in its various and very varied terrains as I would call it and what I started to read about through my undergraduate and graduate studies of the representations of Islam in scholarship and indeed self-representations by Muslims and not least in the modern period of, of let's say kind of reformist and, and reformation based Islam that kind of dissonance I think has really driven my intellect over the decades to try to come up with the formulations at least to my own somewhat satisfaction and then in, in terrains of exchange of trying to form a way of understanding um, on the one hand kind of what a clearly a broader problem in Islamic history of, of, of trying to understand broader trans-regional, transnational forms of continuity, the Arabic script being the most obvious one that's always pointed to but of course the other um, great variable and particularly from scholars such as you or me who is primary point of reference, or at least starting point, has been not in the Middle East, whether in China or, or South Asia, um, to understand that interaction between, let's say, kind of the local and and the trans-region and the global. And of course, as I moved on to being a modernist uh, over a series of books, um, that's what I've really tried to deal with with this book, Terrains of Exchange.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you can really see that in the in this book, at least and, and in much of your other work, too, how that experience must have shaped uh, your approach. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how this particular book uh, began to emerge uh, as a book and how it relates to uh, some of your other scholarship? The book began in in at
1: least its core parts, really, with a series of, of individual case studies of places where I was then living, I guess, in my 20s and working on more intensely and what's now uh, well, what, rather, what was Hyderabad State in, in the sort of princely state of the Muslim royal princely state in the middle of India, um, and then I started doing much more work on something that always interested me, which was the beginnings of Islamic printing and the impact of, of printing on on Muslims and indeed on, on Islam more generally. It was over a period of years, really, that I started to see patterns emerging from these case studies, and then I was driven to try to understand what was the bigger Overarching set of processes and, and patterns that I could extrapolate from these, what were originally in many ways quite local. At least a few of the chapters emerge as local case studies, and then it was a question really of, of, of then new kind of newer interests and newer places of interest that, that that I developed, particularly in the spread of Islam or the Muslim outreach to Japan and the United States in the twentieth century, and to try to um, understand how I could position those. Um, effectively, the U.S. And, and, and Japan really interested me as places where a few uh, an unquantifiable number of, of African slaves in the, let's say, antebellum U.S. and perhaps a, an unknown number, quite possibly zero number of, of, of Hui Chinese merchants in in Tokugawa or pre-Tokugawa Japan. Effectively, the U.S. and Japan were places where there was no um, Muslim community, no Muslim outreach in the early modern period. So these struck me as being wonderful case studies of new areas new terrains where muslims had a a a very kind of rapid outreach really in the first couple of decades of the 20th century so to try to tie on these kind of newer areas of islamic expansion to much kind of older and more familiar ones the middle east persia in particular and and south asia some of the other chapters in the book struck me as an intellectual challenge but really an important one to to test any methodology in, in global studies and, and, and global history. Because, of course, if a process is going to be generally global, it has to work in, in very varied and different um, terrains, as I'm going to insist on calling it. We might define that term a bit later.
0: Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe we can start there, because I think this is one of the real um, valuable pieces here that can be extended to other, other folks working in Islamic studies, is this idea of terrains of ex- exchange, uh, this intersection of local and global, so uh, what, what do you mean exactly by this phrase? Uh, what ways can a site of exchange be understood as a, a as a generative process, would you call it, and what kind of outcomes are possible in these sites well what i 'm
1: trying to do with this idea of a of, of terrain of exchange is really develop a, through really develop a methodology I think for, for global history, which I think is often had its primary origins in, let's say, the hard side of the social sciences, economics and, and so on, and indeed uh, migration studies, etc., has been in many ways, even for historians with world systems theory, et cetera, a kind of a top-down driven field in many ways. I'm trying to approach global history and the study of globalizing processes from, from bottom up. And to start then, and uh, to show methodology, you'd be able to start from a range of different terrains, different terroirs, as it were, different, uh, different as it were, uh, sites of, of local richness and local culture. And, and to be able to do that in, unlike much of global history, which I still think has as its starting point, the West and the Western world. So I'm trying to start using the idea of terrains then as a place of of, of bottom-up globalization. And when I talk about globalization, I mean two things. I mean, on the one hand, I mean what we might more familiar think of globalization, which is movement, travel, migration, uh, intersections in kind of new places, in the book, places like Japan and America. But with regard to terrains then, I'm also very interested in The study of globalization in situ, that's to say a place might be extremely distant. Much of my work, not in this book, is focused on, let's say, kind of, you know, kind of globalizing processes within modern Afghanistan, you know, a place that seems to be very remote, but a place in which throughout the 20th century and in various ways before, but particularly throughout the 20th century, the world has encroached upon those you know particular landlocked corners of afghanistan in range of exchange the case studies i look at are let's say landlocked parts of india hyderabad state unlike the more classic ports model of globalization looking at you know whether it's calcutta or myself bombay etc and also uh, the perhaps much more remote apparently remote areas of central eurasia in the caucasus mountains the borders of the russian empire and uh, and uh, Persia in the early mid decades of the 19th century. So I'm trying to use terrains then as a way of understanding not only as it were people coming out of particular places to the wider world, but the wider world coming to to you know these particular uh, places that may seem quite remote, but are nonetheless subject in the modern period at least to um, to forces of globalization. And of course globalization really is often seen as a as a pattern of exchange. And what I'm interested in really is, and we'll perhaps come on to this in a in a few minutes, the using the methodology of of religious economy to look at processes of exchange that happen that are dynamic, that are, as you mentioned, the key word often used is The idea of generative exchange, that when these interactions, the kind of classic motif, if you like, of globalization and global history, when interactions take place, that they generate something new. That this is, as it were, a kind of a productive dialectic between the meetings and what I look at, between the meetings of European and Indian American Christians and a whole range of whether Indian, Tatar, Persian or various other uh, Muslims throughout these different sites of case studies that I look at in the book.
0: Yeah, and I think this is, uh, especially in kind of historical studies, uh, this idea of religious economies is, is very helpful. Uh, of course, this has uh, been going on in the sociology of religion for a long time. But uh, what, do you, what do you mean, uh, or what does it mean to think about religious actors and institutions as entrepreneurs and firms? And uh, what insights do we gain from uh, examining Islam in the context of religious economies?
1: OK, well, the main thing that drew me originally to the to the model of religious economy, which is something I, I, I use, first of all, in my book Bombay Islam, and I see terrains of exchange as a follow up to Bombay Islam that uses the same um, the same methodology of religious economy in a whole different set of um, environments, a different set of terrains, a different sequence of local marketplaces to show how the model of religious economy can show very divergent um, outcomes. And I think that's the strength of any. Uh, theoretical model that it can cope with and indeed deal with kind of a whole variety of different variables and uh, and different outcomes, the thing that attracted me really initially to religious economy some years ago was a real dissatisfaction with the lack of an analytical vocabulary within the study of Islam and indeed w- within the historical study of Islam. I think very much that um, historians of Islam and indeed scholars of Islam more generally have um, adapted or, or taken on i think in many cases uncritically the uh, emic the internal vocabulary of muslims themselves and particularly muslim reformists what i've tried to do with adopting the 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 model of religious economy i'm not claiming to invent it, uh, it we can talk about perhaps some of its inventors earlier not least rodney stark the, the american sociologist um, but by adapting the model and the language of religious economy i've tried to Uh, create really in many ways uh, what i've called a kind of an anti rhetoric that gives us a new level i think of theoretical distance from our subject of study rather than adopting then as it were the familiar language of of tradition um i think religious economy is really useful because as historians it helps us to factor in change and crucially innovation now the language of tradition of course which is um Whether explicitly or implicitly really still I think informs much of the way we study religion um, would claim that as it were there are some founding figures and some key. Persons and key moments, classical periods, formative periods, etc., prophets, key texts, etc. And then, as it were, there's the, the process of traditio, of handing down, in some way unchanged, perhaps moved or reinterpreted. But fundamentally, I think the language and the model of tradition, of traditio, that which is handed down, I think really informs the way Islam is studied inside and outside of the academy. And I think that's really problematic for historians because it doesn't allow us to factor in what I see as the constant regeneration and the constant reinvention and the constant to greater and lesser degree in different times and places, innovation within um, any uh, religious community instead of communities. And again, with regard to Islam, of course, the issue of innovation becomes particularly tricky when we're talking about um, emic and etic terms, because for Muslims themselves, innovation be there, of course, is by and large a bad thing. So Muslims themselves historically, and indeed, you know people writing within the traditional as i've said scholars influenced by it will by and large downplay innovation because this is seen as being as it were something that is not authentically islamic and yet of course if we're working as historians what we fundamentally have to deal with as it were the you know the kind of the the bottom line of historical study is the study of change so what is religious economy i think um, the most important added value so to speak of A model of religious economy is not only that it uh, helps us move away from tradition and things being, as it were, passively handed down to reckon with the agency of religious innovation and thereby change. The other, I think, radical uh, difference with religious economy as a model of, of analysis is that it factors in not only the supply side of religion, but also the demand side. Now, what do I mean by that? Conventionally, when we study religion, of course, you know, even as historians and indeed even as social historians, we study without necessarily realizing it, we study what a religious economist would, would, would classify as the supply side of religion. That's to say, we study the prophets, the founders, the texts, the leaders, the imams, the sheikhs, all of the key figures, as it were, that seem to be doing religion and whether creating or handing down religion, the supply side of religion, rather than, as it were, all of what one might call the followers, or in religious economy terms, all of the people who constitute the demand side of religion. And what religious economy, I think, really adds importantly to a historical analysis is that religious economy claims that the, the contours, the shape, the character Um, Of religion in any given social environment, what it would conceive as a marketplace, perhaps more of that in a moment, the character, the profile of of religion and religious activity in any given uh, terrain, any given marketplace is the outcome of interaction between suppliers and demanders. Now, that can make really, I think, a radical difference. I mean, we, within my book on Bombay Islam, I think the big difference it showed there was that, according to, as it were, kind of standard Weberian sociology, which has been so hugely influential on the study of Islam, as really, as it were, boosted the historical role of reformist Islam, a modern, um, as, it, as it were, industrialized, uh, relatively educated environment, such as Bombay in the 19th, 30th, 20th century, should, according to Weberian theory, we would expect to see Um, a whole range of let's say kind of reformist disenchanted islams emerging and flourishing there and indeed from the supply side that is indeed what happened but when in my study in bombay i factored in the demand side which is where the cultural taste and preferences of all of the consumers in a religious marketplace all of the people who wanted and needed and looked for religion in colonial bombay their tastes and preferences were actually not for uh, a disenchanted textualist literary islam but they were for an islam that could actually help them with the needs in their lives with the demands they had for miracles for intercession for healing for um, um even for relaxing and, and 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 carnivals no less a carnivalesque musical islam so again the importance of demand side it, it, it brings a dynamic uh, into the whole process of what religion is rather than simply the suppliers um, religious economy brings in this picture then of a complex and constantly generative dynamic that is in tension between um, the resources available to a set of religious suppliers and their tastes and preferences, what they want to show is, as it were, the true religion, and their own actual decisions being based upon, uh, as it were, uh, a kind of bargain with the demanders in the marketplace, with the people that they're trying to attract to to them as as as, uh, as a demand base, what the people they're trying to attract to them as their followers. And of course, what that means then, of course, and the other crucial element of religious economy is that it factors in processes of competition. And competition, as distinct, analytically distinct, I think, from conflict, competition, I think, is, again, a crucial ingredient, crucial ingredient, a crucial motor in tracing religious innovation and change because it's competition between different religious suppliers that actually creates the impetus for religious suppliers to change, adapt, differentiate their religious products, their services in any given marketplace, depending upon the number of people, the number of potential competitors there are in that marketplace. So, a marketplace then might be, as it were, a village at the most simple level where there is only one leading let's say safely family that is there for generations and there is no other religious supplier that's going to be a pretty static marketplace in which there's minimal competition and there is relatively speaking minimal impetus for religious innovation and change when we move to more complex urban environments or indeed complex globalized environments such as as where the caucasus mountains in hyderabad state that i study in the book when we come to a period of more uh, interaction of more global exchange then there will be an increasing number of uh, suppliers competing within any given marketplace, any given terrain. And again, within context of globalization, not all of those competitors, those uh, alternative religious suppliers will be of the same religion. Not all of them will be Muslim. And what I look at the book then fundamentally as a historian starting to move towards Uh, the details and the context and the particular case studies rather than just the theory is the impact then over the very long 19th century as it were the period of imperial globalization i call it from around 1800 to 1940 the impact then of christian evangelical missionary firms as i call them and the impact as catalysts in um, provoking um, muslim religious suppliers muslim religious entrepreneurs and innovators to adopt and adapt Christian missionary techniques for their own purposes. So, the process of competition then that I look at in the book, and of course can be used for religious economy in many different contexts, can be between uh, different followers of apparently the same faith themselves, but constantly driven by competition to differentiate their particular and distinct Islams in the plural, um, or it can be between suppliers of, as it were, quite different religions. And of course, that very much in some ways, I think, uh, Um, A characteristic of the modern period, the drive towards conversion and notions of free choice and individual choice in terms of choosing one's own religion.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really uh, useful model and uh, I hope others uh, will follow uh, the way you're paving here uh, because I think it could be effective in in the vast majority of case studies if we uh, start to think about Muslims across the globe. Um, now, this, uh, there's three sections to the book where uh, you're, you're looking at kind of different uh, sites, uh, similar sites in, in many ways. Um, and the first section, you look at this kind of entrepreneurial competition and innovation uh, fostered by Muslim-Christian interactions in imperial contexts largely. Um, and the first one uh, you look at is what you call evangelical Orientalism um, as it's occurring at England's uh, universities. So could you talk a little bit about what this stream of Orientalism that you're you're laying out here is all about, and how did it shape Muslim religious entrepreneurs?
1: Yes, well, I, I start the book, I mean, it, the, the the point really of starting with the, the Christian evangelicals is really just starting at, as it were, one point of ongoing cycles of exchange. And, and as I point out, in many ways, the Christian evangelical movements were themselves uh, reactions and, as it were, kind of new, as it were, Christian innovations in terms of organization, indeed, in in some ways of doctrine as well. Um, reactions to the impetus of the discovery of, uh, and then of course, the making of an empire first in, in the Americas and then the second British Empire, of course, in Asia. But the what I see is um, what I've called evan, uh, evangelical Orientalism is really um, the the I think the very important phase of when um, oriental knowledge and oriental learning was first put to the service of empire and indeed first engaged with the empire and particularly the second british empire in india and this was a period when orientalism in fact wasn't as edward Said has kind of explicitly stated uh, a secular enterprise quite the opposite it was a deeply christian enterprise and the great uh, endowed professors in arabic um the two endowed chairs in arabic uh, at Oxford and, and at Cambridge and indeed many of their other you know, kind of assistants and minions were deeply involved with the Church and Mission Society the um, British and Foreign Bible Society and uh, various other of the number of evangelical organizations that were founded very rapidly between around 1790 and 1810 and what's important about the impact of these missionaries is their huge investment in translation of the Bible into uh, islamic languages including a whole range of islamic vernaculars some of which uh, had actually had no written form even in their own uh, local environments and uh, the range of a range of turkic non- languages not least and um, no less important, it combined with that translation that vernacularization of scripture and indeed the vernacularization of, of writing and learning um, the other important aspect of the um, evangelical orientalist was the huge investment in printing in Islamic languages, and we have to bear in mind, that, of course, with uh, with the exception of the the kind of the, the outlier Ibrahim um, Mutafariqa and son in the Ottoman Empire, effectively Muslims don't begin printing anywhere till around 1820, and that's one of the. Uh, the chapter that in a way f- that actually does follow the first chapter on the evangelical orientals and their outreach to the Muslim world is what happens then the reaction, the response, the adaptive and innovative response of various individual Muslim religious entrepreneurs that I look at that manage to um, adopt and adapt the Christian missionary technique our printing and indeed vernacular printing for their own purposes. So what we're seeing here then in the book is that first and very, very crucial um, generative form of interaction, that productive dialectic by which Muslims adopt printing, a hugely, obviously hugely wor- uh, uh, world historically important process, and start to adapt. And obviously for a range of what will, in you know, kind of in, in some cases become, of course, artistic and scientific ends. But for my purposes, adopting printing for religious ends, and particularly for for Muslim evangelical ends. So communication technologies. Translation as a technology and translation skills, printing as a technology and printing skills, and also the 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 use of new forms of travel as travel communication, the railroad and of course the steamship, about which I've written a great deal in, in many of my other books. This is one of the crucial forms of adaptation that that these new Muslim entrepreneurs take from the Christian missionary competition, and they're very often much more successful because, of course, they have a greater The Muslim religious entrepreneurs have a greater sense of the local tastes and preferences, the local demand base of their particular environments, their particular terrains. The other very crucial element that the um, new Muslim religious entrepreneurs adapt from the Christian missionaries is the organizational form of the mission itself and this is really a long standing and ongoing process when we look across the 20th century really at the range of new muslim organizations that are founded it's really striking how many of them have such terms as tabligh uh dawa irshad or indeed even mission taken you know as a as a loan word from the english word mission in their titles the tablighi jamaat of course being probably the most influential worldwide at the moment today and what we're seeing here is effectively as i say the adaptation and the kind of the usage of of of, of uh, Christian missionary organizational techniques of forming effectively voluntary societies founded by, based upon subscription rather than based upon the largesse of aristocrats and sultans and podshahs, emperors and whatnot in the kind of the early modern period. Um, the adaptation of these techniques, and indeed, in many ways, again, this is the importance of an etic vocabulary, the covering up of that adaptation process by giving them what seemed to be very old and esteemed. Uh, as it were, etic, sorry, rather emic, internal Muslim term, such as dawah, a term which seems to have been around since the Fatimids and presumably the Quran beforehand. So, um, yeah, this is, in the book, this is the first sequence that I look at, really, this this initial process then of, from around 1800 to 1850, the beginnings of this process of generative exchange, which will be followed up by, roughly speaking, the second half of the 19th century, when we start to get... um, an increasing number of uh, Muslim religious entrepreneurs adopting these techniques and particularly the organizational techniques of the mission, but doing so in relatively localized context within, as it were, home ground. So the case studies I look at there are, in fact, largely within Hyderabad state in India, and actually showing that um, one of the claims I um, I make is that agency is more important than identity in religious economy, which is to sh- say one doesn't necessarily need to be a Muslim to make, as it were, innovative changes in the religious life of Muslims. The Christian missionaries, of course, are one example of that. But the case study I look at, or one of the case studies I look at with regard to Hyderabad is the way in which, um, an important, uh, uh, uh Hindu, uh, Kayasta, an important member of the old kind of Persianate, uh, uh, uh uh, secretarial class within, within Hyderabad state and a prominent member of the Hyderabad bureaucracy, but nonetheless a Hindu, manages to innovate and create, as it were, a new kind of Vedantic Sufism. Uh, and indeed, I also look at other cases within, within Hyderabad when we have kind of new forms of, of, of kind of Sufi yoga and indeed of kind of Sufi Sufism blended with Freemasonry uh, and, and Theosophy. So, again, the point is that agency is more important than necessarily identity. Um, so within those sections of the book, then, I'm really looking at, as it were, a period, second half of the 19th century, more or less, when um, new Muslim religious firms are managing to have a considerable impact within what were, you know, kind of traditionally Muslim domains, albeit domains where there are obviously kind of Hindus and others as well in some places. The third period I look at the book then is the, is the part of the book, part three, that I call innovators or uh, rather exporters. And that's when we see from approximately around the beginnings of the 20th century, we start to see the networks of the British Empire, but indeed wider networks of globalization um, and of kind of globalized steam travel in particular that now connect Muslims with places as far as distant and as completely new as the United States and Japan. And we see um, Muslim religious entrepreneurs, Muslim missionaries, no less, um, adopting the older techniques of Christian missionaries to start to export Islam to what were, as it were, traditionally Christian-dominated religious marketplaces, or indeed Shinto Buddhist-dominated religious marketplaces within Japan.
0: Yeah, and this, this uh, third section really is uh, fascinating in terms of how Muslim outreach uh, is expanding behind, uh, beyond these kind of uh, more traditional boundaries. Um, the one, one place you look at is the construction of the first mosque in Detroit in 1921. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what was behind this project um, what strategies were used to build this community and, and what responses did the project elicit from from muslims in America
1: yeah I found that the, the the detroit mosque a really fascinating project i mean the, the detroit mosque there were various claimants to being the first mosque in the United States but I think the detroit mosque uh, <laughs> was the the first purpose-built mosque uh, in the United States even though it's not now the oldest one because it, it actually kind of was destroyed around 1930 but it's the first purpose built mosque in the United States and that struck me as being extremely important because one of the themes, uh, one of the theoretical agendas I have in the book as well is is borrowing not only from the sociology of Rodney Stark and other founders of religious economy but also from the sociology of Michael Mann and, and his work on um, on the sources of social power and I'm very interested in trying to trace religion as uh, a really important, and I think for globalization theorists, and I think for many sociologists formed, as it were, in the background of of modernization theory across the 20th century and the expectation of increasing secularization, um, I think um, religion has often been kind of under-theorized within both kind of as a force of globalization um, and indeed as a source of social power. Now, Michael Mann makes a, a very important point. That when he's talking about social power, he, or at least uh, uh, my reading of him, the idea is that you know, social power is, as it were, the basic energy of the human world. It's to say it's the power to shape opinions, mindscapes, behaviours, affections, the affiliations of groups, the contours of community. Social power is, in short, it's a means of defining and directing collective human endeavours. And of course, that's what religion does, or at least that's what religious Uh, leaders are able to do. They're able to harness, as it were, group powers and, as it were, shape group decision-making through, you know, what we would basically call their doctrines. Now, a point that, that man makes with regard to how social power, this kind of social power, power over others in the social world is made, is the importance of institutions. It's a very key and elementary point, of course. But I think in the study of religion and religion in the social world, one of the things that I've always been interested in, let's say my you know my book Sufism and Global History, is tracing the basic institutions of Sufism, and it's through those institutions that individual sufis were able to, as it were, shape history on ultimately um, a kind of a worldwide scale. In the case here of of the United States and Japan, the particular institutions I'm interested in here are mosques, and I think it's very interesting also, really, with, with regard to the modern period I'm looking at in this book, the period, let's say, from 1800 through 1914. Indeed, I think the same processes can entirely be seen continuing in the more recent period of globalization after the Cold War in the last 25 years or so. Um, We're dealing with with a period of globalization in which, by and large, the institutionalization of Islam is carried out through voluntary organizations of the kinds I've said were modeled on uh, adaptations of the Christian mission and on mosques. And this is quite distinct from... An early, the early modern period of Muslim globalization, which of course doesn't reach Japan and the United States, when outreach is, is largely through Sufi brotherhoods and through Sufi shrines, albeit in many cases, but not all, with mosques attached. In you know, in some ways, a subsidiary relationship. So these mosques are really important uh, case studies for me. The first mosque in the United States and Japan, because they are symptomatic of a distinctive period in Islamic history when the mosque becomes the defining institution of uh, expansion, the production of social power in uh, new terrains and indeed in old terrains as well, uh, overtaking the the shrine and overtaking the Sufi brotherhoods associated with the shrine, with Sufi shrines. Um, And uh, also uh, as a means of actually kind of looking at, as I say, through via man, the institutionalization and therefore the uh, the the increase of social power available to people who control mosques. And again, of course, that's a uh, you know, kind of very key, I think, kind of takeaway lesson for modern day as well. So getting back to the moving on to then, as it were, the nitty gritty of uh, the details of the Detroit mosque. What's very interesting there is the Detroit mosque uh, emerges, of course, in a period of industrial globalization. It's built right opposite um, Henry Ford's um, uh, factory with the, the world's first production line, the Highland Park factory. Um, The Highland Park factory, of course, and indeed Detroit's industrialization more generally, has attracted a huge number of migrants to to Detroit, not least the great migration of African-Americans from the south, but also lesser known by and large, a large number of uh, uh, Ottoman immigrants, whether Lebanese Christians, but also a considerable number of uh, Lebanese and other Ottoman Muslims, including Albanians to Detroit. And it's an Albanian, sorry, uh, uh, a Lebanese uh, migrant and actually kind of a, uh, a commercial entrepreneur, a real estate developer, as he becomes, called Muhammad Karoub, who founds and establishes the mosque. And yet there is no imam to run the mosque. Now, who arrives in the United States at that period? By at this point, actually, happy coincidence, a member, but a member of the Ahmadiyya religious firm, as I would call them, Ahmadiyya uh, Anjum, one of the greatest and perhaps the most important of all uh, innovative and globalizing um, Muslim religious firms of the 19th, early 20th century. Um, um, This uh, Ahmadiyya religious missionary, Muslim missionary, turns up in, uh, first of all, in Pennsylvania by steamship and then makes his way to Detroit. And he manages to persuade Muhammad Karoub to allow him to take over the mosque and be the imam. From that base of the mosque, he sets up a periodical in English, Again, using, as it were, language skills, translation skills, language skills that he'd already learned in India, and particularly in the Punjab where he comes from. I think there really is the Punjab in Indian religious history in the colonial period is really, as it were, the burned over district, to borrow a term from American religious historiography, the burned over district of India, where there's been such intense um, religious activity, such intense innovation, such intense exchange with Christian missionaries since um, the early uh, 1800s, since around the 1820s. So uh, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, the missionary who comes to Detroit, sets up a newspaper, starts using the very vibrant US public sphere to uh, issue what he calls in his Urdu autobiography. Uh, he uses the word frequently challenge Karana. So we get a sense of semantic exchange going on here in the language using the English word challenge, of course, with the Urdu verb from Karana to make a challenge. And he makes challenges in various church halls, various workers' halls. Um, various other public places, as well as in print, uh, of people to, as it were, disprove Islam. So he's adapting the missionaries of the Christians, the Christian missionaries in India, and turning them on their head, rather than Christian missionaries offering challenges to Muslim scholars to disprove the truth of Christianity, or indeed the Christians themselves disproving uh, the truth claims of Islam. Here we have exactly that turned on its head by this figure, Mufti Muhammad uh, Tzadik, who's doing that entirely within the United States. He's reaching out very intelligently. He's actually a wonderful example of a religious entrepreneur because he, he, he developed a pretty good, for an immigrant, a recent immigrant, he turned up in 1921, um, he develops a, a pretty rapid and canny sense of demand within that new uh, Detroit um, religious marketplace full of, in particular, African-American migrants from the South. And he reaches out in particular through his uh, English language magazine and through his uh, preaching in and around Detroit and also in Chicago. He reaches out to African-Americans, telling them that your true religion is Islam, that Christianity is the religion of your enslavers. And of course, this becomes a a very important theme in the subsequent history of um, African-American Islam. Um, He managed to convert, um, according to the names are given in Muslim Sunrise, something like upwards of a thousand Americans, including a very significant proportion of African-Americans. But what's particularly interesting to me by looking at the marketplace in Detroit and following the after story of Mufti Muhammad Sadiq is showing how the beginnings of African-American Islam uh, comes not only from Mufti Muhammad Sadiq's own entry to the marketplace, but then the emergence of African-American religious entrepreneurs such as the noble Drew Ali, who are active in Detroit and Chicago at exactly the same time as Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, but of course have a greater sense of the demand of fellow and the cultural tastes and preferences, the religious needs of fellow African-Americans. And of course, it's in adaptation of Mufti Muhammad Sadiq's own message, that these various African-American entrepreneurs who, of course, are much more familiar in the history of, of religion in, in America in the 20th century, that they, as it were, adapt Mufti Muhammad's techniques that he's adapted from Christian missionaries to much more successfully then reach out to fellow African-Americans. And, of course, then we get the creation of new Muslim religious firms in America that are led by and, uh, and devoted to um, a demand base of African-Americans. And this, again, is important To shift back to the theoretical dimensions of the book, because the larger claim I'm making in the book, really, um, is to argue against um, one particular line within studies of globalization and the process of globalization more generally. And that's that idea that globalization leads to forms of of cultural and indeed by implication religious homogenization. And of course, within the history or indeed the, the historical study of Islam, whether pan-Islamism or indeed more recent forms of, of pan-Islamism or, if you like, of global Islam or Islam mondialisé or as it's called by various scholars, there's been a kind of a similar notion that Islam will, be, will become indeed more standardized and more familiar through the process of globalization. What I'm showing throughout the book through the case studies and through the theoretical model is entirely the opposite. In fact, what religious economy shows and demonstrates is that increasing interaction, thereby increasing competition, increasing globalization, increasing interaction. Increasing interaction means increasing competition between different religious entrepreneurs, whether fellow Muslims, for example, or or non-Muslims. And that dialectic, as I've said, creates a process of generative exchange, which creates new religious entrepreneurs whose drive in competing with their fellow entrepreneurs, Muslim or otherwise, is to differentiate their product and services. The outcome then, as we've seen in Detroit, is not one Islam that everyone follows, but within a few years within Detroit and, um, and Chicago, the emergence of a whole bunch of new religious, Muslim religious entrepreneurs and firms. In short then, globalization leads not to homogenization of Islam, but inclu- increasing diversification and indeed increasing fragmentation. And I think that is entirely what we're seeing when we look around the world today. Of course, all different Muslim and Muslim religious entrepreneurs are still speaking the language of tawheed, speaking the language of unity, and speaking in terms that scholars might say this is pan-Islamism. But that's the importance of actually differentiating between the message and the claims. It were the emic level of analysis, and. Differentiating between that and the ethic level of analysis, and particularly the social underlying realities beneath these claims of unity and unifying messages, because what we actually have, we actually seeing is, in the present, as indeed in the period I studied in the book up until 1940, is increasing numbers of religious entrepreneurs, a dizzying number of new religious firms, actually um, claiming to be, to be supplying the same Islam, but the social reality is increasing competition and increasing fragmentation, not increasing homogenization or unification or still less Muslim unity.
0: So this uh, generative exchange is also really exemplified in this case study of the first mosque in Japan. So can you tell us about this project and the factors that made it possible? Yes, I found the, the, the,
1: the case study of the first mosque in, in Japan, which which was founded in 1935, as late as 1935 in, in the port city of Kobe. I found this a, a wonderful case study for religious economy because insofar as we can as historians looking at sort of modern urban environments, it represented something like kind of laboratory conditions. What do I mean by that somewhat outrageous claim for a historian? Well, of course, uh, Japan's, uh, Tokugawa Japan's, Uh, policy of of closure to the outside world meant that Japan's uh, opening to the world, as as it's traditionally been called uh, in the Meiji period, um, sets up a a very rapid series of interactions based around really mostly a couple of port cities, Yokohama, Kobe, uh, Nagasaki, uh, and one or two others. And it's really these uh, new port cities, and Kobe as, 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 as one of them, that Very rapidly see not just the arrival of, if you like, kind of the merchants and diplomats, the political and economic forms of global interaction, which, you know, after all, usually the wherewithal of global history, but also um, the opening of Japan and Japan's ports um, sees the arrival of a whole new series of new religious firms and religious entrepreneurs, again, in this very short period. So we can see the rapid, as it were, liberalization of a religious marketplace now, what I mean by the liberalization of a religious marketplace, and this is, again, a kind of a, a key aspect of the study of religious economy, um, is that there can be many forms of religious economy, of course. And that's why religious economy can be applied to any period and place in history. There can be, as it were, village based, very closed and non dynamic relatively static religious economies. There can be, as it were, command religious economies like command commercial economies in which the state is dominant. Look at most of these, as it were, the. Uh, Islamic states in the world today, the state is a major player in defining the religious activities that at least allowed by law uh, by its citizens. Or one can have, as it were, laissez-faire liberal religious economies when the state steps away from directing and having a direct role in in defining and legalizing and illegalizing, so to speak, the religious activities uh, of its citizens. Now, there's a general kind of, as it were, truism within religious economy, or indeed perhaps a general truth, I can go as far as to say to that, that uh, to the greater extent that the state steps away from um, religious transactions in its, uh, in its domain, in its, uh, in its country, um, there will be more freedom to interact, more freedom to innovate, and there will be, as it were, more religious activity, more religion produced, more religious change. Of course, the United States, of course, is the great example of that, which is why religious economy in many ways uh, studied with, uh, emerged through the study of the United States. Because, of course, it's the place where historically one has had more uh, religious innovation and more religious competition. But, of course, you know, the United States is not the only liberal religious economy where the state, relatively speaking, of course, there is no perfectly liberal economy anymore than religious economy anymore. There's any kind of perfect and complete uh, liberal commercial economy but of course the the point is that throughout the modern period throughout the imperial period and indeed the modern period in in other places like Japan one sees um, the state stepping away from religious transactions the religious life of, of life of its citizens in various places the British Empire of course um, um, is one of the the key examples in that that I study in this book on Bombay Islam when the British Empire at least claims and, and by and large obviously with various uh um, with various exceptions, by and large, steps back from directing the religious activities um, of the people of the empire. And, of course, this has a twinfold effect that, of course, it also allows in a whole series of Christian missionary organizations that the old East, East India Company, which had controlled the uh, religious activities of at least Christians uh, in its domains, had tried to prevent. So, when we turn to Japan, one of the crucial moments there in, in, in meiji, Japan is the meiji constitution if, if I remember correctly i don 't have any notes unfortunately eighteen eighty one and the Meiji constitution kind of at least again in theory and by law guarantees the the right to religious freedom of, of Japanese citizens. This coincides with the with the arrival then in Japan of a wide range of uh, foreign settlers, businessmen teachers all kinds of as it were um, Uh, job seekers effectively from around the four corners of the world, particularly from, from the Western world, United States, uh, Canada, and, and various countries in Europe. This causes a number of religious entrepreneurs and religious firms to turn up in particularly Yokohama and Kobe and set up churches for the new demand base of these immigrants. So it's, as it were, the parallel to what we saw a moment ago with the first mosque in America, when it's actually Muslim immigrants to the U S forming a new demand base and then African-American converts here. The initial impetus in Japan for religious changes, Christian migrants to the port cities of Japan, bringing Christian religious firms and the building of Japan's first churches for um, effectively for about 300 years um, since the early Tokugawa period. When the churches were closed and destroyed in Japan. Now, what this sets up then in turn is the drive to convert Japanese legally through the Meiji constitution and the arrival of a whole series of Western missionaries. Um, who seek to not only, as it were, cater to the demand base of Christian immigrants, but also to convert Japanese. And this is a period in modern Japanese history when there are, you know, kind of large numbers of Japanese converts, many of them, as it were, kind of, as it were, you know, modernist in various ways as well, not unlike in, in various other societies, Korea and to some extent um, other parts of Asia as well, China in, the, in this period. Now, it's also um, somewhat later in the, in the Meiji period, indeed at the, at the end of the Meiji period, By the end of the uh, end of the 19th century, early 20th century, that we get the arrival in Japan of not only European and American businessmen, but also a number of Indian and also Indian Muslim businessmen. At the same time, there are a number of not only, as it were, this demand base of Muslim uh, merchants in Japan, but also a number of Muslim religious entrepreneurs, missionaries who come to Japan, Japan, with the express aim of trying to convert the Japanese, and in particular, the idea that they can convert the Japanese emperor to Islam, and then, as it were, have a powerful Muslim empire to rival um, what these Muslim religious entrepreneurs see as the Christian empires of the Russians, the British, the French, and the Dutch. Um, Over a period of of, of time, then, what we can actually see emerging in Kobe is is reflecting what I showed in that terrain of intense terrain of exchange in Detroit is this very rapid and intense uh, process of competition, emulation, adaptation between Christian religious entrepreneurs, missionaries uh, in in, interestingly, also theosophical and Baha'i religious entrepreneurs. And then the first Muslim religious entrepreneurs that also turn up in in Kobe, in, in Yokohama, and indeed in, in Tokyo and other parts of Japan. The ultimate outcome of that is the building of the first mosque in Japan. But what's very interesting about the first mosque, again, as this importance of trying to create uh, tangible institutions of social, let's just say religious power, is that The mosque itself, just like the first mosque in the United States, the first purpose-built mosque in the United States in in Detroit, are actually themselves reflect the deeply hybridized nature of the new Islam, or at least the new tangible forms of Islam, let's just say the mosque, in both places. Because um, the builder, the architecture and the uh, the builder of the, the, the first mosque in the United States was uh, Theodore Dagenhardt if I remember his name correctly, who was actually, you know, a, a Detroit-based architect who was more familiar with building movie theaters there in, in the 1910s and 20s in Detroit. When we moved to to the case of Kobe, the first mosque in Japan, the designer there, the architect employed there was, um, again, a very canny move on behalf of the Muslim British entrepreneurs of adapting and adopting the techniques of the Christian uh, innovators there The architect for the mosque was uh, a Czech bohemian, a former uh, Austro-Hungarian subject called Jan Josef Svagar, who had just two years earlier uh, designed and built the Sacred Heart Catholic Cathedral in Yokohama. And as it were, the Muslim investors in the the mosque in Kobe, uh, as it were, poach him, employ him, employ a a group of British accountants who they had previously used. British accountants and uh, and solicitors, lawyers who they'd previously used for their commercial transactions, and employ a Japanese uh, contracting firm, Takanaka Corporation, that had since the Meiji period specialized in building Western, let's say European buildings. The outcome then, tangibly then, for both mosques, is that they look somehow oriental and eastern, but somehow look quite art nouveau and indeed kind of art deco by the 1920s and 30s. The mosque, uh, built in Kobe then by jan Schwager looks kind of very similar in its architectural features to the Catholic Church he designed two years earlier. Now, this is important um, overall then within, again, the larger claims of the book in trying to show that in the modern period, despite, as it were, the emic claims of Muslim entrepreneurs, firms, and indeed Muslim demanders, Muslim believers themselves, that uh, what we're not seeing is is the handing down of tradition. What we're seeing, I think, is through a social scientific analysis, is that like any other cultural product in an age of globalization, according to a leading uh, globalization theorist, what we're seeing uh, with Islamism, with any other cultural product in the period of globalization, is its hybridization. And that hybridization, that mixing, as it were, through processes of selective emulation, of adaptation, of differentiation, uh, differentiation from Christian, as it were, in Japanese religious competition, as well as from differentiation from other Muslim uh, religious competition. What we're seeing is an increasingly hybridized Islam. And much of the signs, much of, as it were, the most obvious signs of that hybridization is in the, as it were, the concrete uh, communicative, mechanical, indeed, architectural and organizational forms of Islam. That effectively, Islam from the social base, as it were, of its organization and deployment looks much more like the Christian missionary organization of the 19th and 20th century than it does look like the forms of Muslim globalization through the Sufi brotherhoods in the early modern period and the medieval period. But also what I'm interested in in the book, too, is not only as it were this external, let's say mechanical and organizational forms of hybridization, but also I'm interested in semantic uh, the semantics of exchange, and let's to say let's to say semantic hybridization as well and I do try to chase, trace in the book examples of ways in which, as it were, Muslim forms of expression, communication, language use, and indeed even the adoption of loanwords. Mission, of course, a key one, but, of course, also kind of calc words as well, such as Dawah, using that to say kind of Arabic words to translate uh, uh, European words. Um, I'm interested in showing then how this creates, as it were, forms of semantic hybridization as well. And, of course, you know, the point is here that. To try to work against an idea of Islamic exceptionalism or indeed any other form of exceptionalism that to try to trace as a social historian, as a social scientist, try to trace um, underlying processes of globalization that are as applicable to Muslim religious firms and forms as they are to Christian, Japanese, Hindu or any other religious or indeed cultural form under conditions of globalization.
0: Well, now, this is a fascinating book, and thank you for your time. We'd love to hear a little bit about the things you're working on now.
1: I'm just um, finishing off one of my other interests over many years, really, has been trying to uh, uh, build uh, Afghan studies and try to promote the study of uh, the history of Afghanistan, and I'm just finishing off uh, an edited volume on what would seem to be the very obvious subject of the history of Islam in Afghanistan, and yet there is, despite... uh, a topic that you know one would have thought there must be endless shelves of books on this topic there is no actual uh, as it were kind of sequential history of the emergence and the development of islam um, in afghanistan over a period of you know its full length 1300 years so that's an edited volume that will be coming out in december with uh, the University of California Press. And I'm happy to say that that's going to be uh, through their open access platform. So um, I'm not plugging a book I'm selling. I'm plugging a book that I'm <laughs> I'm giving away. And uh, it's a collaborative book that I think is um, really going to be very useful in terms of, of showing, as it were, the the long history of the development of Islam in Afghanistan from initial conversion through to uh, the period of the recent jihad and, and the Taliban. And really, again, uh, looking at... Um, ethnographic data and primarily trying to actually look at as it were the textual uh, record of afghan muslims themselves over that long period so that's been one of my projects and another project i'm working on is another edited book um probably come out in a, in a year or so i guess um, which is called the frontiers of persian learning testing the limits of a eurasian lingua franca and what i'm interested in doing here is again as a as a social scientist and uh a critical scholar and I, I believe kind of critical study is is really important i think as academics we're not meant to be boosters we're meant to be analysts and i'm interested in here in trying to move away from what i think has been a kind of a, a kind of if like a kind of a celebratory phase in the of celebrating the Persianate world as 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 it were cosmopolitan as pluralistic etc etc i'm actually trying to look at a series of the different frontiers and indeed fracture points of the Persianate world by looking at um, social, geographical and intellectual frontiers or fracture points, points at which Persian, as it were, um, its its social reach, its intellectual reach breaks down for various reasons in various different places. And that's a book that is going to cover um, the full as it were, remit globally of uh, of Persian in the period from around 1600 to 1900, right from, as it were, uh, the Malay world of Southeast Asia, across South Asia um, into Central Asia and, of course, into Iran, but also taking on the British Empire and, indeed, looking at Persian usage in imperial Britain in the 19th century as well.
0: Well, good luck with all that, and thanks again for spending some time talking about this book.
1: Okay, well, thank you, Krishna, and thanks to... Uh, One of those listeners who've had the the patience and endurance to uh, make it this far.
0: (laughs) That was my conversation with Niall Green about his great new book, Terrains of Exchange, Religious Economies of Global Islam, published with Oxford University Press in 2016. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.